As you know, this is the place where I say, turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It's an easy one to find, because it's right at the beginning of chapter 10 in the book of Exodus, or Shemot. And it is the place where the first few words are not that unique in Scripture. In other words, they're repeated over and over again. So it says, um, and uh, they amar Yahuwah al Moshe. So, and Yahuwah spoke to Moshe. And here's what he said, Bo. So there's the word that is unique. That, of course, then becomes the name of this Parsha. Uh, and basically, Bo is one of those interesting Hebrew words. It can mean either go or come. And uh, I guess one way to render it both in English is to say, get yourself over unto Pharaoh. So, Bo all Pharaoh. And uh, why? Well, for I have hardened his heart, is the way it begins. Now, that is kind of an interesting take, too, because this is the first time in Scripture that we see Yah hardening Pharaoh's heart. Notice last time, uh, he uh, he hardened his own heart. And in fact, there's two different ways to do it. The English is uh, kind of ambiguous. But in Hebrew, he can strengthen his heart or he can make it stubborn. And he did both at different times. In this case, it is in fact uh, Yahuwah that has made strong his, his heart. I'm, I'm sorry, has made stubborn his heart. Uh, he's kabodified his heart. And also the heart of his servants, he said. Why? So that I might show these um, my signs. Now that word sign, right, is ot. So these are ot, my signs, in the midst of them. And here we're going to get a little bit more of some uh, background. This is also going to fit with some of the things that are going to be real clear in this Torah portion. In other words, the um, the setup for the Pesach, the Passover, and why. And here is one of those things that is going to resonate throughout. So you may tell your son, in the years of your son, and of your son's son, what I have done, what I have wrought upon Mitzrayim, and my signs which I have done among them. And you ready for this? Who's he addressing? Moses. So that you may know. Who? Moses. So that you may know, and arguably, because Moses knows, we all do too, Ki Ani Yahuwah. And as I mentioned last week, um, over and over again, most English Bibles just plain get this wrong. It's not that I am the Lord, okay? That's a lousy translation. It is Ki Ani Yahuwah. And this, he says, is my name forever. This is the character that he's showing. This is the point of the story. And so it's vitally important, I suggest, that we get it right and understand that when he says, so that they will know my name is Yahuwah, that I am Yahuwah, I am, I am then um, it probably is important. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm soft-peddling that, as you know. It is vitally important, or he wouldn't make such a big deal about it. Okay, so Moshe and Aaron went in on affair, and they said unto him, Thus says Yahuwah, there's that name again, the Elohim of the Hebrews, How long are you going to refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they might serve me. Otherwise, he says, if you just refuse to let my people go, behold, right, when is he going to do this? He set the pattern. Pharaoh did it himself. Tomorrow, I will bring locusts, um, arba, lots and lots of them, more than you can imagine, under your borders. And they're going to be so numerous, they will cover the face of the earth. No one will even be able to see the ground. Hot rats. They'll eat what little remains of that which has escaped from the hail. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, I'm going to take care of whatever's left. And they'll eat every tree which grows for you out of the field. And not only that, your whole house is going to be filled, the houses of all your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, as nobody, not your fathers, nor your father's fathers have ever seen since the day they were upon the earth unto this day. So this sounds pretty grievous, and in fact it will be. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. 
So Pharaoh's servants said unto him, Now, this is interesting as well. Remember, we've we've seen Pharaoh's servants beginning to get the message, and this week kind of... Um, this this plague, the plague of locusts, seems to be the point at which they um, they pretty well lay it out for him. How long will this man be a snare to us? They ask Pharaoh. Uh, let these folks go. That um, and now it says the men here. So the the word here is um, the um, let's see, ha'am I think, anashim. Yep, um, that they may serve Yahuwah their El. Don't you know? Haven't you figured it out yet? Haven't you got it through your head that literally they say Mitzrayim, Egypt, is destroyed? This is the first time this word is used in Scripture, but um, it's it's pretty serious. Moshe and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said to them this time, Okay, all right, you win. No, he doesn't say it that way. He says, Go serve Yahuwah Yerel. But who are the ones that need to go? So what it looks to me like we're seeing here is a little bit of what you call the dickering part of dealing with um, something you don't want to acknowledge. He's, he's going to start dickering, and um, we'll see how it plays out. Moses says, well, we'll go with our old and with our young, with our sons and with our daughters, our flocks and our herds. All of us will go, for we must hold a feast, a hag, unto Yahuwah. And then he said, well, okay, so be Yahuwah with you, and I will let, now implications here from the Hebrew are, I will let only you go and the men and your little ones. Uh, see that evil is, you see you that evil is before your face. Now, um, not so, just only the men. So it's, it's like he's he's thinking and dickering and changing. So um, you guys can go serve Yahuwah, because that's what you want. But they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then, this time, Yahuwah says, All right, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. Here they come. They'll come up upon the land of Egypt. They'll eat every herb out of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moshe stretched forth his rod over the land of Mitzrayim, and Yahuwah brought an east wind upon the land all that day. And all that night, when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And boy, did they, they come. Locusts went up over all of the land of Egypt. They rested in all the borders of Egypt. Really very grievous were they. And before them, uh, there were nothing like this ever. No such locusts as these, nor after them shall there be such. Because they covered the entire face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. They ate everything, literally everything. All the fruit of the trees that was left, all the herbs. There didn't remain a single green thing, either herb or tree of the field, throughout all the land of Egypt. They denuded everything. So Pharaoh then called to Moshe and Aaron, and this is interesting too, in haste. He isn't waiting. And he says, all right, all right, I have sinned against Yahuwah, your El, and against you. So now, therefore, forgive, I pray you, my sin only this one time. This sounds like he's basically had a change of heart. Change of heart, right? And entreat Yahuwah Yerel that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahuwah. And Yahuwah turned an exceedingly strong west wind, opposite direction, which drove the locusts right smack into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the borders of Mitzrayim. Uh, now, can you guess? We've already seen the precedent here, and this time it says, Yahuwah made chatzach. Yahuwah, in this case, strengthened Pharaoh's heart, so that he did not let the people of the children of Israel go. And then Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that now this time there will be darkness over the land of Egypt. 
And choshech um, is an interesting word. So that's darkness. And this is darkness that's not just plain old, you know, lack of light. This is darkness that tells us which may be felt. And I've always been fascinated by that, you know, in terms of the physics of it. Because we tend to think of darkness as the absence of light. But this, darkness which is felt, is the presence of something else. It's almost like a dampening field that went in here. Uh, something that is uh, very, very different. Because, you know, why wouldn't they just light a candle? And the answer, well, we don't. We're not told. But darkness that can be felt for three days sounds like uh, that sounds like a real plague, and it also sounds like something that isn't alleviated by the sun coming up or by somebody lighting a candle. So Moshe stretched forth his hand towards heaven, and there was this thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone get up from his place for three full days. But, remember, Yahuwah has been making a difference. The children of Israel, all of them, they had light in their dwellings. So Pharaoh called unto Moshe, and he said, Go, go, serve Yahuwah. Only just let your flocks and your herds stay here. Uh, let your little ones, they can go with you too. It's almost like, again, the dickering continues, and he knows that if they have to leave those kind of things behind, they would be forced to return. So he is trying to make sure that they don't go permanently, and we're going to see how that works out. Moshe said, You need to give us into our hand sacrifices and burnt offerings, things that we may sacrifice unto Yahuwah. Our cattle need to go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. And therefore, we must take all of this to serve Yahuwah RL, and we know not which, uh, that which we will serve you until we get there. So basically he's saying, nope, that ain't going to work. We can take everything. And this time again, Yahuwah hearkened. He kazakified. He made strong Pharaoh's heart. And he did not, would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said, all right, get yourself away. Take heed to yourself. See my face no more. Pharaoh sounds like he's torqued here. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And uh, that is a fateful comment as well. Moshe then responds, and he said, You've spoken well. I will see your face again no more. Now, what's interesting is the next chapter, chapter 11 starts, and it says, uh, again, just like the uh, the Parsha started, Ve'amar Yahuwah al-Moshe. And Yahuwah said unto Moshe the following, Got just one more plague here that I'm going to bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, oh yeah, he will let you go. Uh, when he shall let you go, he will not only let you go, he will thrust you out altogether. The, the root word in Hebrew is shalach, to send away. He will do that. He'll say, get out of here. Now, at this point I want to pause because it it just says Moses has has told Pharaoh, I will see your face again no more. What we're going to see here is it looks like this next um, six or seven verses happen in the presence of Pharaoh. And why I say that is um, because we're going to see that he goes out from Pharaoh after that in hot anger. So uh, since he'd already said, I will see your face again no more, you've spoken well, he had to have been in the near vicinity at least while these verses happened. Okay, So here is what Yahuwah tells Moshe. Speak now in the ears of the people... And let them ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, jewels of silver, jewels of gold. And Yahuwah gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, this man Moshe was very great in the land of Egypt. In other words, he had a, a pretty sterling reputation by this point. Remember the old commercials um, for the uh, the brokerage house when, uh, who was it? Not Merrill Lynch. Anyway, somebody, when they speak, people listen. And uh, obviously when Moshe speaks, they listen. 
He was great in the sight of the people, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and um, basically in the entire land. So Moses said, this is what Yahuwah says. About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant behind the mill, and all of the firstborn of cattle. There'll be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Nothing like this has ever happened before, nor shall it ever be anything like this again. But against any of the children of Israel, not so much as a dog will whet his tongue against man or beast. This way, he says, you shall know that Yahuwah will put a difference. Now, the root word here is palah. He will make a difference between the um, sons of Egypt and the sons of Israel. Now all the servants shall bow down unto me, and um, all these thy servants shall bow down unto me, and bow down unto me, saying the following, Get out, and all the people that follow you, and after that I will go out. And it says this, Moses then, he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So that's why I, uh, I look at this, and it, it suggests that since Moses uh, has, has said, you won't see my face again, and he then goes out from him in hot anger, that uh, either this happened in another room, and uh, he didn't see his face, maybe he heard him, which is a possibility, but somehow or other, uh, what is going on here is um, the last real encounter that we're going to see between Moses and Pharaoh, except... All right, so Yahuwah then says unto Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen. He will not hearken. He will not shamar unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. In other words, I still have something to show. Then Moshe and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, it says, and Yahuwah did. He hearkened. He made strong. He hardened. He made strong Pharaoh's heart. He didn't let the children of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12 says, and here it is again, Ve'amar Yahuwah al-Moshe, and Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe and unto Aaron in the land of Egypt, and he said, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. This will be the first month of the year to you. Now, I have always read that and thought, isn't that interesting? Uh, this month is sometime in the spring, right? The month of Abib, and it's Abib that seems to reference the, uh, the barley harvest being at a certain stage. In other words, it's going to be ready to harvest pretty soon. And that's how we know when this first month of the year is. And, um, you know, when I hear people talk about New Year's and uh, the Jewish New Year's and so forth, Rosh Hashanah, I can't help but think, and you'll see that um, most of the, the rabbinic sources will acknowledge two different New Year's, one when they start to tour over again and this one. But uh, this is the one that scripturally says this will be a beginning of months to you, first month of the year to you. So uh, I take that to heart personally. Speak you all, uh, speak you unto all of the congregation, Koledat, of the house of Israel, and say the following: In the tenth day of this month, they shall take every man a lamb, according to his father's house, a lamb for a household. So we start out taking a lamb, and we're going to later be told this can be a lamb of the kids or a lamb of the goats, but it's basically it's a young um, animal, uh, hooved, and either a goat or a um, or sheep. And if the household is too little for a lamb, well, then you can use the next-door neighbor. He and his uh, neighbor next to his house will take one according to the number of souls. So depending upon how many people you have that need to eat, that's how, uh, that's how you decide if you need to go in with the neighbors. According to every man's eating, you'll make a count for the lamb. So essentially, again, uh, we're talking about make sure there is enough and uh, that there's not going to be a whole lot left over because we know what's going to happen to that, or at least we're going to find out. 
Then it says this, and I always thought this was interesting, and I've got a little notation in my margin here. It was a lamb before, but now it's your lamb. Notice, your lamb, he says, shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you keep it under the 14th day of the same month. So the lamb is going to be in the house for these days, from the 10th day through the 14th day of the month. And the whole assembly, kol edah, of the congregation of Israel, shall kill it at dusk. Now, I'll ask the question. I think this is one of those poignant things. Uh, we don't see a lot of emphasis on the, the the four days here, but I can't help but think that you know having this little lamb around for four days, and now it's not just a lamb, it's your lamb, has bound has got to make some kind of, a, of of an impression upon the people who are going to see this lamb sacrificed and its blood put over the doorposts of their house. There's something very powerful in that symbolism, and there should be, right? Then they shall take of that blood and put it on the two side posts on the lintel and the houses where uh, upon the houses wherein they shall eat it. So they take the the blood of the lamb and they put it on the uh, the lintel of the door. And then they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire, unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Now, all of this, of course, is the thing that we now recognize as the elements that are memorialized by the time called Pesach. Don't eat it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roasted with fire, its head, with its legs, and with the innard parts thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn with fire. So you eat what you what you need to eat, and what's left over is burned with fire. And here's how you shall eat it, he says. With your loins girded, shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you eat it in haste. It is the Pesach uh, Le Yahuwah, the Passover of yod Hey vav Hey. Because I, he says, will go through the land of Mitzrayim on that night and will smite all of the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, both man and beast, and against all of the gods, the fake gods, the Elohim, the so-called mighty ones of Mitzrayim, will I execute judgments. Here comes the signature line, Ki Ani Yahuwah. Notice, when you see him executing judgment against false gods, No wonder we see the signature line. The blood, it says, shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And there will be no plague upon you to destroy you when I, in fact, smite the land of Mitzrayim. This day, he says, shall be unto you for a memorial. Now, listen to this and note the importance of this and note how, essentially, it's been lost, and uh, what I refer to for this reason, or among others, as the whore church, has essentially de-emphasized something, and listen what he says instead. This day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it, as the word here in Hebrew is hag, as a hag unto Yahuwah, a feast, throughout your generations. Uh, does that still apply? You betcha. Throughout your generations? Are we generations? You bet. So, yes, it applies. You shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance, olam, forever. Uh, What's not clear about that? Well, just wait. Seven days, he says, you shall eat unleavened bread. So, bread that is not allowed to leaven. How be it? On the first day, you will put away all of the leaven out of your houses, because anybody that eats leavened, uh, leavened bread from that first day until the seventh day, this is serious, that soul shall be cut off 
from Israel. He will cut that soul, that nefesh, that life, that person off from Israel. Want to be grafted in? Better be careful. And in the first day, you will have a holy convocation. And the seventh day, also a holy convocation. Uh, in other words, these days are to be set apart. What? What does it say? No manner of work shall be done in them. Well, with one exception, it says, save that which every man must eat. That alone may be done by you. So you're allowed to take and prepare meals. but um, and, and sometimes you'll hear uh, these Sabbaths, this is one of several that are in his calendar, referred to as cooking Sabbaths. Because the prohibition does not include not making any food or meal preparation, but it does say no manner of work. So it doesn't say no work whatsoever, but certainly not the kind of work that would get uh, people uh, paid uh, or uh, we would say with pecuniary interest involved. All right. You shall observe, he says, this feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought you, your hosts, out of the land of Mitzrayim. Therefore, you shall observe this day... Let's see here. Does this sound familiar? You shall observe this day throughout your generations by an ordinance. Uh, this is a, the word is chuch or chukhat olam, an ordinance forever. Now, that's the second time he's used very similar wording. Throughout your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month. Now, by the way, one other quick comment. A lot of you have heard this before. When you see that word chukhat or chuk, in Scripture, it is a, um, it's the kind of thing which is basically a commandment, and you do it, why? Because I say so. Sometimes we say, okay, this makes sense, I can understand, you know, thou shalt not murder, why he would say that, because I don't want to be murdered. So those are called commandments, or there's a different Hebrew word that's used, uh, mishpatim, sometimes, or mitzvot. Uh, they are uh, not, however, this kind of thing, which is an ordinance or a statute. And actually, statute is usually the word that's used to translate uh, hook into English. So uh, I, uh, I question that a bit, just because it's not consistent. But what does he say? This is one of those things, do it because I say so. By, say so. It's an ordinance or a statute forever. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, at sundown, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of that month at evening. Seven days there will be no leaven found in your houses. And here is another repetition. Because whoever eats that which is leavened, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner, a stranger, somebody that's there, or one that is homeborn, born in the land. And notice that they're not in the land yet, so... Um, this is clearly to apply in the future, and um, arguably it's going to apply in the very, very, very near future at this point. But we are to remember it and understand it is throughout your generations forever. That soul, the penalty, is to be cut off, whether you're a sojourner or homeborn. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations. You are to eat only unleavened bread. Now, the word here in Hebrew, this is a great word, is chametz. So chametz is this, this word that means uh, essentially unleavened bread. Uh, and, and literally, uh, chametz has to do with leavening agent, in particular the kind of leavening agent that's alive, or yeast we would call it now. Um, so uh, it's lacking this, um, this yeast thing in the bread. And uh, that is something that as we go through and talk more about uh, Passover, it'll make more sense. And obviously there's lots of uh, discussion about this and uh, what constitutes leavened bread and, and unleavened bread. 
Anyway, Moshe, it says, called for the elders of Israel. He said to them, draw out, get yourselves your lambs, according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. Then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin. Strike the lintel and the two side posts with that blood that's in the basin. So they're going to strike literally a kind of a chet uh, in Hebrew, that uh, the modern chet, which is um, uh, literally two uprights and then a cross part over them. With the blood in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. So the message here is you want to live, you stay in the house, stay under the covering of the blood during this time that I will pass over. But those that are outside of the house are um, at grave peril. Because Yahuwah, it says, will pass through to smite the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on that lintel, on, on the two side posts, Yahuwah will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And he says, oh, wait a second, does this sound familiar? I think we've heard this before. As a matter of fact, folks, we've heard it twice before. This is the third time in this one portion describing this one obviously very important activity that he has repeated an almost identical statement of the command. You shall observe this thing as a chukat olam. There's in, uh, an ordinance to you and to your sons throughout your generations, right? To you and to your sons, in this case, forever. So it's the third time, and uh, I keep I, I keep wanting to, to notice this and say it really does. It bugs me when I hear the the whole church say, "Well, we got better feasts. This all this all Old Testament stuff's all done away with." What an unmitigated lie from the pit of hell! Un- shame on you, you lying sons of Satan, you, for saying that which he says not once, not twice, but three separate times is a command throughout your generations for you and your sons and your sons' sons forever. And how dare you turn your back on him and call him a liar? Now, furthermore, this, I think, is uh, th- that helps to bring home the point that is made in the next line here. It shall come to pass, he says, when your children say to you, hey, what's the meaning of this service? Well, then you say the following. You don't say it's done away with its Old Testament, in other words. You say this. It is the sacrifice of the Pesach Le Yahuwah. It is his, yod Hey vav Hey's Pesach, Passover. And in that time he passed over the houses of the Benai Israel, the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and he delivered our houses. And the people, it says, bowed their head and worshipped. Well, what else? The children of Israel, the Benai Israel, they went out and they did so. As Yahuwah commanded, Moshe and Aaron, well, so did they. Kind of simple, isn't it? They commanded, he commanded, they did. So it came to pass in at midnight, on that night, that Yahuwah smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was down in the dungeon, as well as the firstborn of all of the cattle. And in this case, it sounds like that means all of the animals, literally, uh, in the land. Now, the next line is kind of fascinating. There's a bit of a Rashiism here. And um, his his take, I think, is... is uh, it, it seems almost trivial, but it's kind of fascinating. He adds the words uh, that in understanding what this is saying in the Hebrew, says, Pharaoh rose up in the night. Pharaoh rose up in the night. All right? Uh, Pharaoh um, rose up, and Rashi basically says, look, when you look at the Hebrew... It says that it didn't, it didn't use words that would normally be used in context. He woke up in a panic. He woke up in a, in a cold sweat. He woke up in fear. No, he, he slept well. 
In other words, what he's meaning is he woke up from his bed. He had slept well. He had slept soundly. Well, up until this point. He and all of his servants and all of the people of Mitzrayim, all the Egyptians. But there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a single house in which there wasn't someone dead. And he called for Moshe and Aaron by night, and he said, Rise up! Get out of here! So he, Pharaoh, calls for Moshe and Aaron. He tells them, Rise up, go forth from among my people, both you and the Benai Israel, the children, and go, serve Yahuwah as you've said. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you've said, be gone. Oh yeah, and bless me too, please. The Egyptians were urgent upon the people. Get them out of there. Send them out in haste. For they said, we are literally all dead men. Uh, and it's great. You know, we're, we're dead already. We're walking dead. And the people took their dough before it was leavened. So um, um, historically and traditionally, they'll say, well, there's a maximum time limit. And it's slightly different for Passover. Want to make sure that uh, no yeast in the air that's just floating around gets in the dough and starts to leaven it. So uh, it's just been sitting there for literally minutes. They took it and they, um, they bound it up in their clothes, put it on their shoulders, and they headed out. As the children of Israel did, according to the word of Moshe, they asked for the Egyptians, uh, hey, give us what you got, some some jewels of silver and of gold and clothing and so forth. And Yahuwah, it says, gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have whatever they asked. And it says they despoiled the Egyptians. They literally cleaned them out. And this, as it turns out, is going to be important for a number of reasons. Uh, one, and arguably the one that is most uh, relevant here at this point, because Yahuwah had said, he had told Abraham this was what was going to happen, that they would go out with all of these things. So the Benai Israel, it says, journeyed from the place of Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, as well as children. And uh, you uh, may have heard the numbers. Um, there is lots of speculation historically, but certainly there were lots more women and children and uh, older folks and, and so forth. Um, later on, we're going to get, in the book of Numbers, we're going to get a count, and we're going to see how many there were of men of uh, fighting age. And the answer is, well, given that that's a fraction of the total, probably there were between 2 and 3 million souls that headed out. That's a huge crowd but 600,000 men on foot in addition to children. As that mixed multitude went up along with them, they all had flocks, herds, and a whole lot of cattle. So this is a huge, literally, a city-sized entourage uh, with cattle and um, everything. And they baked unleavened bread, cakes of that dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, because it wasn't leavened, and they were thrust out of Egypt. They couldn't tarry. Got to get out of here. And they had not prepared for themselves any victual. So they didn't take time to pack up, you know, a week's worth of stuff like they were backpacking. They just headed up and moved on out. Now it says, the time that the Benai Israel dwelt in Egypt. Now a lot of the sages will add that uh, looks like this just essentially is saying uh, Egypt, meaning in particular the land outside of the land. Uh, that would include, because the land wasn't yet their land, Canaan on. So Egypt and Canaan was 430 years. And that is uh, is consistent with what we see in Scripture. So it seems like it's a reasonable understanding, in other words. came to pass, then at the end of that 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all of the host of Yahuwah went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching unto Yahuwah for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And 
That's an interesting take, and I've uh, I've heard some uh, some commentary that uh, you may uh, find interesting from rabbis over the years. This same night, they say, and a lot of folks will therefore, as a tradition, they'll stay up all night on Passover, and here's why. That same night, it says, is present tense a night of watching unto Yahuwah for all of the Benai Israel throughout their generations. So uh, I don't know that that means that we are commanded to stay up all night, but I do think that um, the the implication here is clear. Whatever this means, it is a night of watching for all of the Benai Israel, and that would include us, especially if we think we should be grafted in, throughout all their generations. Yahuwah then said to Moshe and unto Aaron, this is the uh, the ordinance, the huchat, remember that's a do it because I say so, of the Passover. No alien shall eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought with silver, when you've circumcised him, then he shall eat thereof. Now we're going to see that this is an interesting take too. The people who shall eat, including servants of those that are not native to the land, but that are brought in, they shall be circumcised. Then they can have the Passover. A sojourner and a hired servant, nope, they shall not eat thereof. In one house it shall be eaten. Then you do not carry anything out of the flesh abroad from the house. In other words, you, you uh, what's, what's ever left over, you don't take out. No leftovers. Nor shall you break a bone thereof. And if you remember, that was uh, important when we get to the time of Yeshua. That, uh, that reference... Uh, having to do with the uh, the picture of the Passover lamb is certainly uh, important too. Kol edat, all of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now, when a stranger, it says, sojourns with you, and he'd like to keep the Passover of Yahuwah, let all of his males be circumcised. Then let him come near and eat it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land. He will be just like a homeborn, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And then we get this. And this is going to be repeated in Torah elsewhere. This is the first place we see this. And it's an interesting, um, uh, well, it's an interesting statement. It says, uh, Torah achat. One, that's that second word there, achat. One instruction, one law is how some render it. But uh, it's an instruction, which is, of course, bigger than law even. Shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. So you have one instruction that applies to everybody. Thus, he says, did all of the Benai Israel, as Yehuah commanded Moshe and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass in that selfsame day that Yehuah did, in fact, bring the Benai Israel out of the land of Mitzrayim by their hosts. So here is literally the, um, the final of the, um, the, the ten plagues. Uh, sometimes you'll hear me say the three sets of three plus one, because clearly there is something different about this tenth plague, uh, a number of things that are different, but it doesn't fit in the pattern of the other three sets of three that, uh, that you see. And in fact, one of the differences is that Yahuwah himself says, Israel is my firstborn, and we're going to see that reference, this concept of the firstborn and the importance play out here and indeed throughout Scripture. And, and it's going to play out in other places in the Torah very soon as well. Okay, chapter 13, uh, just the first half here is the final part of this Parsha. And again, uh, it begins by Yahuwah speaking unto Moshe, and here's what he said. Set apart, sanctify. Kadosh is the word, right? That means to set apart. To set apart all of the firstborn. We've just had this plague that afflicted the firstborn. 
Those were the ones that were literally passed over because those the ones that had they not been under the blood would have died. Sacrifice, no, sanctify, set apart, kadosh, make kadosh unto me all of the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, whether it's man or even beast, it is mine. So for those of us that are firstborn, uh, we belong to him. Moshe said unto the people, uh, Remember, Zakar, this day, in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, because by strength of hand, Yahuwah brought you out from this place, and there shall be no leavened bread eaten. This day, you go forth in the month of Abib. And it shall be that when Yahuwah brings you into the land of these people, right, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, which he swore unto your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day you shall have a chag, a feast unto Yahuwah. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days. There will be no leavened bread seen with you, nor shall there be any any leaven seen with you in all of your borders." And you shall tell your son. And this is an interesting word in the Hebrew here. It's um, vehagadita. Vehagadita. Um, to your sons. Now, if you recognize that root word, and you shall tell, uh, you will hear the term Haggadah, or some will say Haggadah or Haggadah, but uh, anyway, just uh, that root word there is used here, and it is the same word that is called uh, the service. So the uh, the service of the Passover is often called the Haggadah or the Haggadah, and it is what? It's the telling. So that is literally what the word means, and that is exactly what the commandment is. You shall tell your son in that day. This is why. It's because of this, which Yahuwah did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. And you'll even see some renderings into the English that's kind of fascinating. Um, some translations will say the, the better way to say this is it is for this purpose that Yahuwah took all of us, the congregation, the mixed multitude, Kol um, Israel, out of the land of Mitzrayim so that we would know, so that we would be witnesses. And again, Ki Ani Yahuwah, so that we would see his character in what he has done. And I think that is um, vitally important and also vital to remember, especially now. This, it says, shall be an oath, a sign unto you upon your hand and for a memorial between your eyes that the Torah of Yahuwah may be in your mouth. The instruction of Yahuwah may be in your mouth. We're to teach. He makes that point clear. The whole point of the telling is to teach. Teach your sons. Teach us uh, the things that the whore church has, has claimed was done away with. Horrible lie. That the Torah, the instruction of Yahuwah may be in your mouth, because with a strong hand Yahuwah brought you out of bondage, out of Mitzrayim. Therefore, it says, you shall keep. Now, the Hebrew word here is shamar, the root word. So you'll hear Shema Israel, Shamar, right? Depending upon the conjugation, uh, it's either Shema or Shamar or... Uh, in, uh, you can put different suffixes to me, the you all forms of the word, but essentially, keep, hear, and do. So when you see the word shamar or shema, it means more than just listen or, or uh, hear. It means keep, hear, and do. 
because this is an action word, and it is a word that is more than just, uh, you know, listen to it. It's when you listen and when you do it, you have fulfilled the, the meaning of the verb. So keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. That sounds kind of like what we heard three different times, right? And it shall be that when Yahuwah shall bring you into the land of the Canaanite, as he swore unto you and your fathers, and he gives it to you, that you will set apart unto Yahuwah, this is the firstborn thing again, all that open the womb, every firstling that is a male, which you have uh, coming of a beast. In other words, even if it comes out of an animal, that belongs to Yahuwah. Whatever it is that is the firstborn of a female that opens the womb. Now, the firstling of an ass, you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you won't redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And of the firstborn of men among all your sons, you shall redeem. Now, that's an interesting terminology. We're going to see more about that in, uh, in um, instruction to come. Now, it shall, it shall be, he says, that when your son comes to you, and he asks you in this time ahead, and he says, hey, what is this? Then you tell him, by strength of hand, Yahuwah brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that Yahuwah slew all of the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, you tell your son, I sacrifice to Yahuwah all that open the womb if they're males. But the firstborn of my sons, of course, I redeem. And this, it says, shall be for a sign, an oat upon your hand, and for frontlets between your eyes. There's a, a phrase that we've heard before. For by strength of hand, and here is the final verse of the Torah portion, Parsha Bo, because by strength of hand, Yahuwah brought us forth out of Mitzrayim. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. So come out of her. Hey folks, Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom, welcome back. Good morning. Let's talk about the portion that makes up the end of the ten plagues of ancient Egypt, or Mitzrayim. Uh, and as you know, I like to use the uh, the way to put it of three times three plus one. So three sets of three plus the one that is unique. And of course, we see that one in this uh, description as well. And lots about this one that is so unique are, in fact, going to... Um, uh, literally set the stage for so much of what we're going to see throughout the rest of Scripture, and certainly for uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today. But the Parsha, of course, is called Bo, which either means go or come, and a better way to put it is, uh, at least in English, that encapsulates that idea of both. Get yourself before Pharaoh. And ultimately, he gives some reasons. We, uh, we've we heard similar statements before. But in this case, it's so that you, Moshe, Moses, may know Ki Ani Yahuwah. Now, as you know, I like to go through the uh, the whole portion on uh, Rev Shabbat on Friday night, and um, there are some key elements there, though, that we will recap. But I will I'll add a couple of things that I think are really important to uh, to set up where I want to go today. First, this is the first time that we see the Passover, uh, literally the original um, existence of it. It uh, it's it's the primal event that brings everything else to pass. There are, of course. Shadow pictures here that are painted that we're going to see um, completed, uh, made more um, made more obvious throughout time and so forth. 
There are a couple of other elements that I want to make sure we note, too, up front. For one, we talked about this um, last week or the week before, probably both. The reason for all of this is because in Exodus chapter 3, when when Moshe is at the burning bush and he is introduced to the, uh, the concept of, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses hit his face, and he says, verse 7 here, this is part of the key, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, that are in Mitzrayim. And I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. I know their pains, he said, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them into a land, a good land, a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and the place of all these people that are going to be displaced, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So now, he says, the cry of the Benai Israel has come to me. And I see what's happening, how they are oppressed. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you, essentially, what's going to happen from here on out. So there are a number of things that are set up here. And as we go through some of this today, I'm going to suggest that, um, well, remember, uh, I like to paraphrase Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat exactly, but it rhymes. The same is true of prophecy. We see prophetic elements. Uh, The uh, term that you'll see used by uh, Shaul or Paul is shadow pictures, uh, things to come. And in some cases, those things to come are also shadow pictures. They rhyme with things that have passed in history. Because uh, human nature being what it is, we repeat the same mistakes. And sometimes, because he knows that and he created us, obviously, we will also see that his, uh, his reactions to that and the things that he does build to a climax over a series of cycles. In other words, bondage is one of those things. We've gone into bondage before, it happened again, and now it's happened and we're still in bondage. So there are elements of uh, history and prophecy that repeat a number of times. And the question, of course, is, are we done yet? Or are we seeing the final one yet? And that's always... um, that's always difficult. I, I noticed, you know, for those that have climbed mountains, you will note that um, when you climb a mountain and you're, you're heading towards a huge peak, a lot of times there will be little sub-peaks along the way. And as you climb each one, you might think that's the top. So you get to the top and you look and you go, look, there's another one. Sometimes, oh, there's several more before we get there. And... Um, this is a little bit like when we're walking through these uh, these paths of repeating um, prophecies and cycles in history. We see something similar. Okay, so we get a couple of things on the uh, on the chalkboard, if you will, to take a look back at. Uh, this is the first time we're going to see the actual Passover, and it's also a a, a time when we're going to see a number of requirements where he says, "Look, um, do this." Repeat this. Remember this. Teach your children this. And it's also uh, forever, throughout your generations, and and so forth. So uh, those are repeated. So he knows we need the repetition. Uh, Likewise, the bondage. And um, as I go through this, I'm going to make a couple of observations. And it occurs to me that since the Passover is um, literally what's being set up here, and uh, one of the points of what is called the Haggadah, and we see that word used in this week's Torah portion, and it's the telling, and that is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to tell our children, we're supposed to remind ourselves, we're supposed to practice these things. And it occurs to me that, um, if you think about it, we practice this every year. Uh, some people, it might be that this coming year will be the first year, but regardless, as we understand these things, as we repeat them, as we uh, reinforce them in our minds, my experience has been that we learn. We learn a lot every year, and sometimes it takes three or four or who knows how many repetitions before we go, wow, I never saw that before, but that really makes sense. So that's part of the reason for the telling. And uh, so I want to begin where we're going to go next with a bit of that. 
And in fact, some of this is a summary from this week's Torah portion because this uh, this Torah portion is obviously a big part of the telling. It's the first the first pass. And it says this, um, and I'll just go through a summary of some of these. These are all from Exodus chapter 12, where uh, I noted he repeats this admonition no less than three times. This day, it says, shall be to you, the day that we're talking about, this time of the the Passover when the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, was uh, repeated. But more importantly, we see this element of how is it that he is going to redeem his people, not only from bondage, but from the, the death of the firstborn that was part of the way this plays out. So this day shall be for you a memorial. You keep it as a feast, a hag, to Yahuwah throughout your generations. That kind of sounds like forever, but wait, uh, he ain't done yet. You shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. You shall observe this feast of unleavened bread. For this selfsame day I have brought you out, and your, by your armies, literally, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day and your generations by an ordinance forever. Hmm. And on this day, you'll eat nothing leavened, and during this week, all your habitations, you eat unleavened bread, and you shall observe this thing, here we go, third time, to you and to your sons and to your sons' sons, even, he says uh, throughout this, forever. You shall keep this service. And furthermore, it says, when your children ask you, what do you mean by all of this? Then you shall say, this is the sacrifice of the Pesach of Yahuwah, who passed over the houses of the Benai Israel in Mitzrayim, uh, in, in other words, the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered us and our houses. Now, what's kind of funny about this, and this is where we're going to go, there are several um, references to this that we are going to see in uh, the Gospels, in the telling of the story of Yeshua, which, of course, culminates with the story that uh, is this shadow picture that is, in fact, something they had practiced up until this point. They had done it over and over again. Some, as a result, were able to see what was happening. Others still somehow managed to miss it. And that, I can't help but think, also is a lesson for our times. So, um, what's the point? Well, he takes them out, and he has done that. Here we are remembering that. And in fact, now we have two repetitions to remember. We have the first uh, instance of this idea of the Passover. And then, of course, we have the fulfillment that we saw with Yeshua, also perfectly fulfilled at the time of the Passover. So there's two cases for us. And interestingly, both of them have to do with um, taking us out of bondage. And sadly, in both cases, so much of the world has gone back into bondage. And that's why the cycles are not yet complete. There's more to it. And I'll suggest uh, a partial answer to the question that I'm going to continue to ask as we go through this today. Why does he keep saying forever, forever, forever? What? You mean it's not done away with? Wasn't all is finished? It's not um, the Old Testament? No. Otherwise, there'd be no point in uh, studying to show ourselves approved. Otherwise, we would miss out on all the things that are still coming. And if we believe he's coming back, if we recognize that not all the prophecy is fulfilled, then who are we kidding? Of course it's not done away with. Of course it hasn't come to an end. And uh, guess what? One of the things that he says people do remember is, do this remembering me. Must be a point to that, too. So we're going to talk about all of those things. And I want to begin with this question of of the cup. And um, I've had some discussions of late. This, of course, is part and parcel of what we see uh, as we study the original time of Pesach. And certainly the time that we uh, we recognize that uh, that is outlined there for us in places like Matthew and in Luke. In other words, uh, his telling of it. And it has to do with this issue of this cup. Now, a lot of times I can't help but um, kind of uh, be chagrined that much of ex 
will pretend or or misread what is talked about there as if it's only one cup. And, uh, you know, that's what is primarily mentioned. But, in fact, if we actually go through the stories, we'll see there's at least two. And I'll make that clear as we go through this today. And um, arguably there's more than that. Well, in the traditional Pesach or uh, Passover Haggadah telling or Seder service or however you want to call it, there are uh, generally four cups that people will talk about. And um, those are, are listed. I'm going to go through that. And as I do, I'm going to be somewhat careful. And as you know, there are things that we see explicitly in Scripture that I say, this is obvious, you can't miss it. There are other things you go, well, this is described there. This, what we're going to talk about, fits it. But can I prove that it is explicitly and only what is being said? The answer is no. In other words, there are some things that uh, we see that Yeshua does that seem to look like traditions. Now, that's interesting, because as a general rule, uh, he is not big on traditions. But we're going to see in, in uh, this week's uh, Take a Look that, um, in fact, he does seem to carry on with a tradition. He does not criticize the tradition. Indeed, he uh, he looks like he emulates it. So I will suggest if there had been a problem with it, he'd have probably pointed that out, and we might have a record of it. It doesn't prove one way or another, but what it does say is, here is a tradition how much of it was in place at the point where, uh, you know, we're, we're looking uh, around the uh, the time of uh, zero before the, cur- the current era? We're not sure. But Paul talks about the tradition. Yeshua certainly seems to honor that tradition by the uh, the reference to these cups and the breaking of bread and so forth. So clearly, this was a process that was already in place. That's not surprising, because we know that they had been keeping the, um, the remembrance of this Passover uh, Haggadah, because they had been commanded to, literally for century after century at this point. So no surprise that there would be traditions, and um, perhaps it's no surprise that the traditions, especially if they foretold what it was that Yeshua was getting ready to do and indeed was doing, no wonder he didn't criticize them, because they foretold and they demonstrated and they made the point of his coming. So I'm going to suggest I tend to believe, right, your mileage may vary, you don't have to agree, that the tradition, and I'm going to outline a bit of it here, seems to be in accord with uh, his word and what he did and his plan. So with that, uh, let me go to um, one of the, um, uh, this is what you might call a traditional uh, Haggadah or, uh, or Seder service, and you'll see that there are four cups that are generally talked about. Do we know that Yeshua did all four of the cups? No. Matter of fact, we know that he didn't, and I'll come to that in a second here. But we uh, we know that the four cups, at least, are part of current tradition by uh, most of the Orthodox Jews, and yeah, there are variations and, and so forth. But it certainly looks like he at least kept part of this. So, the, um, the claim, and this, I think, is part of the reason why we can suspect that it goes way back. The claim from the rabbis is that this tradition of the four cups is based on the four I will promises that we've already seen in the Torah, uh, and in, in fact, the story of the Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, uh, that are called the four I wills. So, essentially, a cup for each of the I wills. So this is what uh, we are told to understand and to know and what Moshe was uh, to write down and to say unto the Benai Israel, Ani Yahuwah. Well, there you go. He says that a lot. And he says, I will, there's the first one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will rid you of their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments and I will take you to me for a people, 
And uh, I don't have the Hebrew sitting here in front of me, but, uh, well, I could look it up. I- I'm pretty sure that word is lechak, which is the same way that a, uh, a husband takes a wife and he takes a people. It is an act of, um, if you will, of an intimate understanding and literally of a taking. A taking as one would, again, take a wife or take those who are his. So there are the four I wills that traditionally outline the four cups. Now, notice I'm emphasizing this because I can't prove these things, but I will suggest that if we go back and look, we're going to see they are consistent with Scripture. They're consistent with what we have recorded for us in places like Matthew and Luke, and we'll go to both of those. And they're also consistent with um, history and, uh, and other traditions. So first one, the cup of sanctification, it's usually called, because I will bring you out. I will separate you. What does it mean to sanctify, to separate, to make kadosh, to set apart? I will separate you from Egypt and from bondage. And so this would be the first cup that we would be drunk at the meal. And, um, you know, there's a traditional blessing that people will hear in Hebrew. And if you've not heard it, it's uh, it's repeated enough that eventually this one's easy to memorize. Baruch atah Yahuwah Eloheinu. Uh, sometimes in, a, in an orthodox setting they'll say Baruch atah Adonai, because remember, we're not supposed to say that name. But he says it's so important, you will know it. It demonstrates my very character. So I'm going to say the name because I believe we're supposed to. Baruch atah Yahuwah Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, King of all, or King of the Universe, Borei Prehagafen, and that means who creates the fruit of the vine, hence the idea of the first cup. And so uh, during the meal, the folks would drink of that first cup, this cup of sanctification or separation. Then, if we talk about the next one, it has to do with uh, what's called the second cup, the second of the I wills, and um, this is um, essentially before the meal. Second cup is called the cup of judgment. Now, this one I want to spend a minute on because I'm going to suggest it is vital to our understanding. Certainly, uh, regulars and folks that have uh, heard uh, heard me go through the Torah more than once will know I spend a lot of time talking about this. So I'm not going to try to repeat literally hours and hours of teachings on this. Um, but I'll just suggest uh, take a listen to some of these others. Certainly, when we get to Numbers chapter 5, I spend some time on it. We're also going to see it here in just a few weeks because the first reference to it seems to be after the incident with the golden calf. And you can see why all of this relates to judgment, right? It also is going to show up in the story of uh, Yeshua and um, what happens after the meal. But here we go. This cup, it appears repeatedly in Scripture. It is, in fact, uh, the place where it's obvious is the cup given to the wife who is suspected of adultery. That would be in Numbers chapter 5. And it is given, uh, yeah, because we know in this case, uh, we can't prove it, but we're getting ready to, it's given to the idolatrous whore of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. Now the key here to understanding this cup is in Numbers, we have a spirit of jealousy that's coming on a husband. And he does not know. He suspects. He maybe have good reason. He may have good reason to suspect that his wife is guilty of breaking this covenant. She has perhaps committed adultery. And um, it's often noted that this is the one process procedure in Scripture which requires a miracle on the part of uh, of Yod Heh the Creator. He literally brings the man brings his wife before the priest in the set apart place, and uh, these things happen. And um, there's a miracle. One of the one of two happens. Either she is uh, shown to be innocent, and then they're blessed, and usually that is uh, considered to involve um, her becoming pregnant and, and with child, or something really horrible happens, and her thigh rots and her belly swells, and um, that would be an indication that uh, she didn't pass the test. Now, 
what we're going to see is when when we when we talk about Yeshua's case, there's a different twist to this. And I hope that'll be clear. But let's just briefly, I won't read the whole section in Numbers chapter 5, but this uh, this is also called in Hebrew, you'll, you heard some kind, called the Sota, the woman who is uh, accused of trespass or having gone aside against her husband. So uh, the man brings his wife unto the Kohen. He brings an offering for her, and that describes the offering. It's a meal offering to bring iniquity or Torahless newness uh, to remembrance. The priest, the Kohen, then brings her near. He sets her before Yahuwah. He takes the following. Now, this is where I see the reference to the cup. And uh, sometimes if you do a word search for the cup, you might not see it, because, you know, what kind of a vessel does he put it in? How does it get translated into English? But he takes an earthen vessel. In other words, something made out of clay or a fired vessel. And he takes of the dust that's on the floor of the uh, the tabernacle, the mishkan, and he puts it in the water. So he puts some dust from the floor in the water. Now he sets the woman before Yahuwah, and he lets the hair of the woman's head go loose. Puts that meal offering that the husband brought of memorial into her hands, the meal offering of jealousy, and he waves... Uh, He shall have in his hand this water of bitterness that causes the curse. So that's what it's called here, the water of bitterness that causes the curse. It is in the cup. He causes her to swear. If no man is lame with you, and you've not gone aside and become, you know, uh, an adulteress, and you're under the authority of your husband, well, then you're free from this water of bitterness bitterness that causes the curse. Not going to hurt you. But if, in fact, you have gone aside, and if you are defiled, and some other man has, uh, you know, done what he shouldn't have done with some uh, with with your husband's wife, then you got a problem. The police will cause a woman to swear the oath of cursing, and uh, Yahuwah will make you a curse, he says, and an oath among your people when he makes your thigh fall away and your belly to swell or render uh, sometimes as rot. The uh, water that causes the curse goes into your bowels, makes your body swell, and so forth. She says, Amen, Ave, Amen. And he writes the curses on a scroll or a bit of parchment or whatever. He blots them out with that water of bitterness. And then he makes the woman drink from the cup this water of bitterness that causes the curse. And it enters into her. And, uh, well, one of two things happens, right? And then he takes the meal offering out of her hand, weighs it before Yahuwah. And later, when he has made her drink the water, well, it comes to pass. If she's defiled and acted unfaithfully, then that water enters into her, causes her belly to swell, her thigh to rot or fall away. She will be a curse among her people. If not, it says, she's clean, there will be reconciliation, she's cleared, and shall conceive seed. So it sounds like she goes back to her husband, and they have a a wonderful reunion. This, it says, is the Torah of... um, uh, kana or jealousy, and it's the plural form here that's used, uh, when she goes aside but is under the authority of her husband and ends up being defiled. And notice, this is how the, the chapter ends. The man here, having done this, he is clear from Torahlessness, from iniquity, but is the woman that bears her own iniquity, her own Torahlessness, and, and therein lies the rub, because we notice that for the most of the rest of the idea of covering is that the husband bears his wife's Torahlessness. He has authority over her vows. There's times when he's supposed to uh, to cast things down, but he bears the guilt, the iniquity of um, the fact that she made the vow at all. So ultimately, this is part and parcel of what I think is key to this idea of covering. And that, of course, takes us right back to these cups and to the question of what's happening with Yeshua. How are we to understand um, this whole process that's outlined here in this first idea of, um, well, what? 
What is it that's going on when the blood of the lamb is put upon the lintel, on the doorpost of the house? There's a covering, right? He, yod heh vav sees the blood of the lamb, and he he over, overpasses. Uh, he does not go in. The, the, um, the destroyer does not enter that house. It is covered. The iniquity is covered. Whatever's going on in there, as long as they stay in the house, uh, they are protected. And anybody that's outside the house, they uh, might be in a whole heap of trouble. Again, the whole message here has to do with what? This idea of I will separate them, I will bring them out, I will deliver them, I will redeem them. And uh, we saw the four I wills. We're going to see these four cups. And I've, I've kind of worked up to, if you will, this idea of the, the cup that we're talking about, this cup of judgment here, the cup that is put into the hand of the wife who may or may not be guilty of adultery. Now, let's fast forward a couple of thousand years and say, well, what's the situation with Yeshua? He's there for a reason. I think it's probably not arguable. He knows that the people that he is there to redeem, in fact, are guilty, worthy of death. They are worthy of judgment. What's he going to do? Well, he is there for that very reason. He is there to deliver them, to take that curse upon himself. That's what we're going to see. So let's let's look at some of the the specifics in the scripture. And um, of for example, Luke twenty two. The same story is told in in Matthew chapter twenty six. And uh, let me go through. Uh, let me go through a little bit of that. So Yeshua took this cup, and praying at this point, he says, um, "Well, wait a second. Hmm. Turns out the gospels don't give it to us in this order." Now, this is the part that's a little bit confusing, and this is the part where I think probably some of it's ignorance, and it's ignorance on the part of the translators, because they didn't know their Torah, they didn't know the story, they missed part of the point here. Undoubtedly, since it's been taught that way, a lot of us do too. So let's, let's, let me read it in the order that I have usually explained it, but it's not chronological. Huh? Okay, so um, we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 26, Verses 29, and also uh, 39, 42, and 44. That's the chronological order. That's the order that we think we see it in the in the gospel according to uh, Matthew. So let me turn there, and um, let's go to Matthew 26 and start with uh, 29 first. So it says, um, he, um, he as they were eating, now here we go. Notice the time stamp. As they were eating, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. Drink from it, all of you, he said, for this is my blood of the renewed covenant, Brit Hadashah, shed for many for the remission of sins. But notice, he says the following, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in Machut HaShemayim, the kingdom of the heavens, my father's kingdom. So this second cup, the cup of judgment, he does not drink. Well, he doesn't drink it there with them. Let's let's take a um, a brief look ahead. Well, what about the third cup? Because it's important we understand it. The second cup was given, and we see that this was done essentially uh, during or before the meal. The third cup is the cup that is usually called the cup of redemption. And remember, the, the I wills, um, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Okay? So, after Yeshua had told his disciples to drink the second cup, he has said it. He did not drink again. 
And Matthew 26, 29, which we just read, uh, makes that clear. I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you, the renewed covenant, Brit Hadashah, in my Father's kingdom. So he didn't drink that cup of redemption either, the one that follows, uh, with his taught ones. Instead, he poured it out for them. So there's a third cup that generally follows the meal, and we're going to talk about all of this, but let's let's cut to the chase here. Scan ahead just a little bit, because we know what happens in the rest of the story, right? After the meal, um, he, he gets up, and he, um, he says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, evil unto death. Stay here, and uh, wait, watch with me. And then he goes out, and he fell on his own face, and he prayed. Now, we know this is probably one of the most famous prayers in all of Scripture. He says, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Okay, let's pause there. Let this cup pass from me. I will contend. And again, your mileage may vary. I think that when you see it, the pieces fit, and it makes it clear. The second cup, this cup of, uh, of judgment, the one that is the cup from Numbers chapter 5, is given to the wife who is accused of adultery. Yeshua is innocent. He hasn't done anything. He is not guilty of adultery. But guess what? He is going to take on their sins and literally do what needs to be done. And uh, we know how that plays out, but let's go through the story. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I just soon not drink this, okay? Uh, that's an understandable reaction. And we see in Matthew that it actually says he prayed this three times. And we see it again in verse 42. Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it. But, what does he say? Thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Finally, again, he says um, the third time. He prayed with the same words, is how Matthew puts it. So, multiple times, he takes the cup, this cup of judgment, takes it in his hands and says, I will drink of this if I need to. Not my will, but thy will be done. And indeed, we know that he does. And this is literally the cup that was judgment that he took for all of us. What about the the following cup? Well, what does he say? I won't drink again until until the time of the renewed covenant in my Father's kingdom. Uh, historically, traditionally, this third cup is drunk. And um, let's look at the the story. It is called this cup of redemption. And it's, um, it's taken after the meal. So again, the, the time stamps in the story here give us a bit of the clue. And um, I like to say with respect to Luke, if you read Luke chapter 22, you'll see a very similar statement. Uh, perhaps it's even a little bit more ambiguous. But um, when we understand, when we're given the time stamps, you know, which cup before the meal, which cup after, it's a little bit easier to say, okay, now we understand which cup is when and which one he's talking about. But the, the cup of redemption... From Exodus 6.6, 6, uh, the I wills, uh, I will redeem you, he says. Oh, so it's a cup of redemption, right? With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Why? Because ki ani Yahuwah. You will see, you will know, they will know, everybody will know, and that is part and parcel of the plan here. So, he's already said that after his disciples drank the second cup, he would not drink again. So he does not drink this one either. Uh, in fact, he drank of it in a whole different way, and as a result, he took on the sin and died. But the perfect lamb who drank that cup of wrath, 
the cup of Numbers 5, the cup of judgment in our place, did not drink the cup of redemption after the meal with his taught ones. Instead, he poured himself out for them and for us, what? So that we might be redeemed. Notice that uh, traditionally the same blessing is spoken over this one. Baruch Atah Yahuwah Eloheinu Melech Haolam, King of the Universe, Borei Prehagafen, who creates the fruit of the vine. Do this remembering me, he says. The one who drank this and the following cups in your place. But the cup of judgment is so that literally you might have the redemption. And finally, the um, the fourth cup is the one that is... Uh, um, and this one is interesting because it varies a little bit more traditionally in my experience. But it's often called the cup of praise. Baruch Kabah B'Shem Yahuwah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahuwah. And you'll notice that that one too prophetically appears in a number of places. The cup of praise. Thank you for all the things that you have done. So I think, uh, I hope that that's helpful at least in, in understanding a little bit of the, um, the ambiguity that's in there. And, and this is a problem with some of the different renderings and the fact that we have English that is translated from Greek, which is arguably written by people who either were Greek speakers or maybe the Greek originals have been lost. I do believe firmly that that is the case with, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, which was almost certainly written originally in Hebrew and or Aramaic. We do have surviving Aramaic copies. I've got one sitting here. Uh, you'll hear of Shem, Tobes, Matthew, and there's also a, a Hebrew Gospel of Matthew that you can find from a fellow named Howard. And um, uh, again, they're based on either the Hebrew or the Aramaic. So uh, I think there is a lot of value to be had in, in looking at those. But um, ultimately, I will contend the more we study, the more we go through this repetition, because he says, do this remembering me. But what does he also say? Do remembering me? Yeah, do it forever throughout your generations. Keep it as a hog, a feast, forever. And even though we say, well, wait a minute, we saw it fulfilled the first time there in Egypt. We saw it fulfilled the second time when he memorialized and he came and he did all those things perfectly to, uh, as Michael Rood likes to say, the day, the minute, the hour, and the second. All of the things that he did that demonstrated who he was, what he was doing, and even the Roman centurion, as you know, saw it and got it. We should see it and get it too, but wait. Why are we still doing it? Why are we told? Keep doing it. Because obviously he's going to return again. Well, perhaps there are some elements of the, the other feasts, the, the fall feasts in particular, and I, I personally believe, as uh, most of you know, that uh, that is an important, a vitally important understanding when it comes to his second coming and the things that are, that are prophesied to happen. But all of these are for our blessing. All of these are shadow pictures of things that have happened, are happening, and will happen. And uh, there is value in seeing them. And I, I really don't think we can understand prophecy and the times we live in and know the times and the seasons unless we go through the uh, the motions of uh, at least memorializing those things that he says, I've, I've given you this for a reason. There's blessing in this, so do it. And uh, and that is part of the reason, right? Even for the drinking of the cup. Is the cup symbolic? Is it really his blood? Well, you know, the Roman Catholics believe in the, uh, uh, I joke about the transmogrification and so forth. But the point is, are we even talking about the right Yeshua? If he did away with the law, I will contend that uh, he ain't the right one and his blood doesn't mean squat. But on the other hand, the one who is the one true son of Yah, the Torah made flesh, what he did, what he came to do, what we're supposed to memorialize and understand and practice is vitally important and it is truly uh, salvific, if you want to use that term, in terms of understanding um, what has happened, what is happening for us, and what will happen.
And again, that is all part of the key. So um, let's see. I will. I'll ask because as we're going through here, sometimes there's questions. Did I miss any questions in the room or anywhere online? Okay, I, I see some comments, but if there's QQQs, that makes me, okay. No, I don't think I don't think I missed anything there. Um, so, um, oh, let's see. Is there any? Um, I'll, I'll look at it just to make sure. There may be some. There may be some slight differences in Luke's rendering. Chapter 22, verse 18 is where he he says essentially the same thing. Uh, this is where Yeshua again same same uh, uh, event. From a different witness, a different point of view, uh, this one being Luke says, um, take this and divide it among yourselves. Taking which cup? The second cup. And um, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of Elohim comes. And notice that there's some slight differences in the reporting of what he does when as far as, as the bread. Uh, but he does say the same words in verse 20 uh, that we see in Matthew. This cup is the cup of the Brit Hadashah. And I like the term renewed covenant because new can mean new or renewed. It's the same old covenant, but you all broke it, is what the prophets tell us. And now I'm here to make it right because you didn't keep it, but I am on your, beha- on your behalf. The new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then he says, Behold the hand of the betrayer. My betrayer is with me on the table. So where I want to go, um, I guess, in, in terms of setting up some of the other things that I think are important, and that especially perhaps this Passover will, um, will be vital for many of us. Uh, if it's the first time for, for a lot of folks or those that are listening later, uh, that's wonderful. It's good that we begin to learn these things while we still have time and while we still have the ability to study. And because it's going to get more and more difficult, we know that there's going to be persecution. All of these things have, be, have been promised. We know that there are going to be um, literally a famine for the word at some point in time. So better that we put it in our hearts and our minds and uh, hopefully have it written on our hearts. But uh, it helps to study it first. Because it makes it a lot easier. And then we can recognize the fakes and the liars and the things that will come. And, and they will. And we've been told that too as we, uh, as we work through it. So the, um, the Haftorah portion that goes with this is from Jeremiah chapter 46. And uh, let's turn there. I wanna, I'm going to actually kind of gloss over a little bit of the first part. Uh, because, um, well, because we've kind of sort of talked about it. And I want to focus on the prophetic part at the end. But um, according to the, uh, the sages, the, um, the study begins in um, chapter um, 46, verse 13, which has to do with the word of Yahuwah coming to the prophet, Yermayahu, and uh, it has to do with Nebuchadnezzar. All right, now this is long after what we're talking about here in the Exodus. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is going to come, and he's going to strike the land of Egypt. And there's going to be a lot of uh, conquest, and we know that Nebuchadnezzar has a huge part in the story of, of the, uh, the first set of uh, the major prophets, as they're called, and people that are taken into bondage and that go into Babylon and so forth. And um, it turns out that there is a prophecy here against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And um, essentially he says this in verse 19, O daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity. All right, Egypt is a very pretty heifer. Basically, it's a fatted calf, ready for destruction. When it comes, it comes from the north. Okay, they'll cut her down, and they'll cut down her forests, and uh, they're more numerous, and it's going to be uh, pretty gnarly when all this happens. And then verse 25 says, Yahuwah's Evoot, Elohim of Israel, says, Behold, I'll bring punishment on Ammon uh, of No, and on Pharaoh, and on Egypt, with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh, and those who trust in him. 
So certainly this is one of those things where we say, okay, that happened. We know that Nebuchadnezzar did these things. Nebuchadnezzar also conquered, and he took people, uh, Daniel famously and others, uh, back to Babylon. And uh, there was that period of captivity. And then later they returned from that captivity. So we, we can see a lot of these pieces. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he says, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, says Yahuwah. Now, what interests me about this, and um, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a quick peek first at, um, I guess you'd say Paul's take, Paul's take on this in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on the same cups, and you'll see why we're gonna take this and then go back and, and connect some dots because what he's gonna say later is, uh, "Don't fear, O my servant Yaakov." Hmm. Okay. So there's this this prophecy of this bondage is gonna happen. But no, wait a minute. Bondage, bondage. Okay, I've, I talked about cycles and cycles repeating. Well, we saw bondage in Egypt. We saw deliverance by a mighty hand. That was the um, element that made for the first Passover. And then we see, but you're going to go back and do the same thing again. You're going back into bondage. Sure enough, that happened too. And then there was the building and the second temple period. We know some of the story there with uh, Ezra and uh, the prophets that uh, were in the time of the rebuilding of the uh, temple. You know, Solomon's temple, the first one, then the second temple, the one that Yeshua appeared in. But other than that, the sages often say that the, the Ruach didn't really inhabit the second temple. And interestingly, uh, guess, guess who did come into the second temple? But that too, right? We know the history. That too was torn down. And here, both the whoring wives, Ahola in the north, Israel, uh, Aholaba in the south, Judah, are back and are still in captivity. So as we're looking at this and asking, you know, where are we in these cycles? Well, we're still in a place where we've seen the prophetic elements. We're still practicing. We're still memorializing these, uh, these feasts, these set-apart times of Yah, for good reason, because we're still in bondage. We're looking for an end to this. And uh, remember how I started out? Cry out. Well, what happened? The people in Egypt in bondage, the, uh, the, the sons of Israel that were in bondage, but in Egypt, they cried out. And that's what Moses was told. I heard. I understand. I listened. Here I am. Here's what's going to happen. And as a result of this, I'm going to make my name known. Ki ani Yahuwah. We're going to see a lot of things play out. And all of these are part and parcel of that. Okay, so... I'll read one verse, and then we'll go back to, uh, to Paul's rendering of this uh, issue with the cups and how all this fits together. Do not fear, O Yaakov, my servant, says Yahuwah, for I am with you. That's not even the complete statement, but we'll come back to it. So in chapter 11, uh, looking at Paul, he is talking about uh, what is, uh, in the English, they call it the Lord's Supper. Well, okay, I, I don't dislike that term, but really, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the Passover meal. We're talking about the things that he said, do forever, throughout your generations, and yes, do this remembering me. All of that's important. And what seems to have happened in a lot of cases is, especially if we've forgotten who he was and why he did what he did, uh, it's become something different than what it was we were really supposed to remember. What are the cups? Well, the cup first of sanctification to be set apart. Has that happened yet? It has, and then it's needing to happen again. The cup of judgment, has that happened again? Yes, it has. And um, he has delivered us from it. But on the other hand, what happens if one then goes back and, uh, what, as Paul puts it, uh, dares to do things that they should not or do, put him to death on the cross again in some English renderings, or basically uh, makes of nothing 
what has been done for us. That's not a good thing. Certainly it does sound like that would be deserving of judgment. How about those that just didn't know and didn't get it right? Well, again, I'm going to make the point. There are cycles here. And these cups, the first one of sanctification, then of judgment, and finally of redemption. He said, I won't drink it again until I drink it with you in the Malkut Hashemayim, in the kingdom of the heavens, my father's kingdom. What does Paul say? Okay, so with the uh, with uh, some of the language out of the way, um, we'll start in around verse 23 here. After he says, hey, be careful. You know, if you're just coming here to get a meal, uh, that's probably not the right attitude. All right, I agree. For I receive from Yahuwah that which I deliver to you, that that, uh, that the Mashiach, Yahuwah um, in the flesh, if you will, Yahushua, the salvation of Yah, on that same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, right, he's quoting exactly from what we see there. And which text? That's kind of interesting. Um, you'll see that some of the uh, the Greek variants aren't quite sure. But anyway, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup also. Now, this time he says, after the meal. After the meal. So again, we're talking about that third cup. Notice that there is a little bit of ambiguity here. Um, the third cup, he, he may or may not have said this at the second cup. Paul seems to think he took it after the third cup. Honestly, that makes more sense to me. But um, does it really matter? Because in either case, the cup of judgment and the cup of redemption are both key to understanding what's happened. So he says about that one, the one that is taken after supper, this cup of redemption, this cup, he said, is the Brit Hadashah in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So those are the words in red. Then Paul says, because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death. And he says death here in this one. I'm going to say there's more to it, right? It's not just his death. It's his burial. It's the fact that he was three days and three nights exactly as he prophesied and said and showed in the tomb and his resurrection and the fact that he fulfilled perfectly all those things that he came to do. And that is what it is that marks him as who he says he is. Again, ki ani Yahuwah. Paul goes on and says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of Yahuwah in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of uh, our Lord. He, um, he seems to be trying to emphasize here in this letter to the people in Corinth that this is important. That is the understanding that, that we do this in that matters mightily. And I, I agree with that. For whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Torah-made flesh, our, our risen Lord. For this reason, many of you, they're sick and weak and many sleep because we would, if we'd rather judge ourselves, we'd rather not be judged. In other words, if we have to judge ourselves, we don't like what we see. Uh, let's just skip that part, right? But when we are judged, we are chastened by the by Yahuwah that we might not be condemned with the world. Therefore, when I, when you come together, my brethren, uh, eat to, to eat, wait for one another. Anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, he says, uh, lest you come back together for judgment. So he's, he's talking about some things that he saw then that were unworthy. But what the story gives us is a little bit more insight as to the timing and what it is that we're talking about here. So I'll contend again. Um, how many cups did, um, did the tradition that was being um, in, in play at the time of the telling uh, during the time of Yeshua, how many of those cups? Well, it's certainly, we know that there are at least two. And we know that um, there were um, probably... 
Uh, at least that, that buttresses the idea of the tradition. But there were at least two that we can count for, for sure. And arguably at least one more because it looks like he drank the first one, even though we may not have specific indication, but then he tells them that he's not going to drink of the rest of them. Hmm, okay. So my point is, it can't, I can't prove any of this for sure, but we do know that there's some, some indicators here of the timing, and we do know that the very fact that he didn't condemn the tradition and say, this is a tradition of man, it's not, it's not on the ball, don't do this. No, he didn't do that. Uh, if anything, he confirmed that there were elements of this tradition which made the story that he was literally playing out before them um, come alive, if you will, um, clear before them. So when, when all is said and done, I, th- I think the point here is, no wonder we understand that he says, do this remembering me, oh yeah, and do it forever throughout your generations, over and over, period. It's a shadow picture of things to come. It was a shadow picture of what he's demonstrated, but there is still great value in repeating it and understanding it. And indeed, I think uh, each of us, as we go through this every year, will find we learn a little bit of something, we see something new that we didn't see before. Okay, back to that Hoftor that I mentioned. Because essentially, uh, we, we stopped at around verse 27, where the prophet is talking about, okay, bad things are going to happen to Egypt and to Pharaoh. They're going to go into judgment. We've seen this. Then he says, don't fear, oh my servant Yaakov. Yaakov. Remember, ja- Jacob was renamed as Israel. Why does he use Yaakov in this case? Well, these sound like the, uh, if you will, the, the blood-oriented, the, um, the gene- genetically-oriented types as opposed to perhaps the more spiritually-oriented understanding. Uh, those that are descendants of him, in other words, have they been grafted in? Well, does it matter? He's talking to those that are, in fact, um, not to be dismayed. Don't be, don't be scared, because behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Yaakov shall return, have rest, and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Now, let's pause at that point, and i got to ask, right? Has this happened? Okay, well, certainly, yes. At least, maybe. Why do I say that? Well, we know that there was a captivity in Babylon after this time. And we know that Daniel writes about it, and there are certainly other witnesses in Scripture. We know that when they came back, uh, during the time of Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, and of Ezra, uh, that there was a rebuilding of the temple. So, so we know that there are elements that have already played out in here. They will return. They did return. Do not fear, O my servant Yaakov, says Yahuwah. No one shall make him afraid. Hmm. Well, that might have been true for a while. Is it true in the, uh, in the eternal sense? In other words, did bad things later happen to the descendants of Yaakov? Well, yeah, here we are, still in bondage. As we know, there have been any number of bad things that have happened to the southern kingdom, to the descendants and the line of um, the king of uh, Judah. Certainly, uh, people that would call themselves Jews can remember the Holocaust and any number of things that uh, I would say made a lot of people that were descendants of Yaakov, of Israel, afraid. So, what I'm going to try to suggest is uh, there may have been a partial fulfillment, but again, cycles repeat Here we are in a place where there are a lot of people who are certainly of Jacob, whether they know it or not, that are afraid. Okay, I think that's probably going to be tough to argue against. He says, do not fear, O Yaakov, my servant. I'm with you, for I will make a complete end of all the nations. The Hebrew word there is goyim, to which I have driven you. Now that, to me, kind of resonates today, doesn't it? Remember in, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, Uh, You'll be driven, you'll be scattered, you'll be to the four corners of the earth, everywhere. 
every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. You're going to be scattered everywhere. We still are, folks. We still are. A lot of people that may be descendants spiritually or physically of Israel, of Jacob, don't know it. They don't know. You know, Are they from a tribe? Which tribe are they grafted in? Some uh, believe that they're grafted in. They may not even know it if they proclaim, I'm not of Israel. Then it's hard to say, I'm of Israel because I'm grafted in, but no, I'm going to deny it. And I've heard that, and uh, I shake my head in wonder, how, how can, well, or we'll call it double think. But regardless, he says, I'll make a complete end of these nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. So for those of us, and I will contend that that includes most all of us that are listening to this, who are in exile, Many of us are in bondage. Some of us are starting to understand what that looks like and what it needs, what, what we need to do to be able to come out of it and to return to him. But he promises this. But I will not make a complete end of you. There will be a remnant. We see that. It is described here and elsewhere. There will be a remnant. I will not make a complete end of you. I will, uh-oh, well, brace yourselves. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. And I can't help but think uh, that certainly resonates. That rings true today, doesn't it? I will rightly correct you. I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Now, let me go full circle and back to where I started because, hey, what is uh, what is it that cycles do? They go f- full circle. They repeat. Uh, we would say two pi radians or 360 degrees. For those of you that have background in trig or, or mathematics or just how a wheel spins, a full revolution is 360 degrees. Um, or, again, uh, you know, there's a number in terms of what are called radians that uh, makes the math easier. But regardless, the cycle repeats. Uh, I think we are in a place where we're going to see enough of the cycle repeat. And, and you get a good view of a cycle in a human lifetime. We may not see all of these things that take centuries to repeat, but we're certainly coming to what I think of as a cusp, a place when a lot of stuff that has been prophetically revealed is coming to a head. We saw it this week with some of the things that are going on in the world, and I won't dwell on that at this point. If there's questions, we'll talk about them later. But uh, ultimately, I will rightly collect, correct you, but I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Certainly sounds to me like exactly what we're seeing. So, again, back to this full cycle thing. How is it that the story with Moses begins at the burning bush? My people Israel, he says. These folks that are in bondage. Now, they were free. They were saved. They were brought out uh, of the famine. And thanks to Joseph and to the fact that he was obedient and that Yah had a plan, uh, they saved those people, the descendants of those tribes, the sons of Israel. Now, here they are. When the story of Exodus picks up, they're in bondage. And what does he say? I am the El of your father, the Elohim of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And I have surely seen the affliction of my people down there in Mitzrayim. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their pains. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of those uh, those nasty folks. Bring them into a land, their own land. Uh, how about us? The reason why I think this is important, the cycles repeat, part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason why we're still practicing these things, memorializing these things, looking and understanding these things, seeing what the message of the Pesach is. What is the message, too, of the coming wedding feast, the fall feast, the time of the blowing of the shofar, the trumpets? Uh, We see this throughout Revelation. Well, I can't help but think, as far as where we are today, it's time to cry out. It's time to ask. 
that he deliver us from bondage. The bondage of Fauci, the bondage of the Biden Fuhrer, the bondage of the communist Chinese and the, the other puppets that are pulling the strings of this uh, tyrant and of these people who care not about the God of the Bible. Who is this Yahuwah, right? What does Pharaoh say? I know him not. Well, does anybody believe that there's any swamp critters that wouldn't say exactly the same thing? How do we know this? Because they're going to glorify LGBTQ. And if the God of the Bible says don't do it, they say, yeah, the hell you aren't. We're going to teach you. We're going to force you. We're going to cut off your kids' genitalia. We're going to make you do it. Is that not cruel bondage? Now, I, I, as I think about that, I'll, I'll ask. You know, we see, what does Pharaoh do? Moses comes and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, ah, I ain't going to do that. Matter of fact, I'm making them make bricks. How's that for being a tyrant? they got to make bricks. And I'm not going to give them any straw. Yeah, I'm mean. Well, let me ask you. How about if instead he'd said, I'm going to take their little boys and I'm going to cut off their genitalia. Well, the Pharaoh before him did want to kill a bunch. Yep. But wait a minute, so does the modern Pharaoh. They want to kill as many as they can. They're not discriminatory. They'll kill girls too. They'll harvest their little organs. We're talking, folks, about a level of evil that you say, okay, uh, is it worse than Pharaoh then, or is it not as bad? Uh, Pharaoh wasn't cutting off the genitalia of little boys and the breasts of little girls, but he was pretty mean. Well, so today are the same things. We have people that have technology that that Pharaoh didn't have to do other kinds of evil to people, to manipulate their minds, to destroy their, their immune systems and make them suffer diseases and inject them with crap. It's, it's not my point here to try and say which pharaoh, which tyrants, which evil servants of Satan are worse. Just to say, you know, the cycles repeat. Here we are again. And I look at Pharaoh and I think, okay, he was a bad, bad nasty, tyrannical dude. <laughs> okay, he ain't no worse and certainly isn't that much better than a lot that are out roaming around today doing the same or worse or certainly different. Is it time for people to start crying out? Are we finally starting to see? You know, sadly... Most don't. But wait a minute. Isn't that the lesson here, too? We're going to see it in the next Torah portion. It's going to come right off the top. But we're going to, we're going to notice that it is a kind of a pervasive problem with the sons of Israel. They get delivered with a mighty hand, and what's the first thing they want to do? <laughs> we want to go back to bondage. Yeah. Come on. Okay, he took them the long way around. We hear right off the top in the next portion. Because what? Because he knew that they would see hardship, they would see war, and they'd want to turn tail and run right back into the bondage they were comfortable with. Isn't that a description of the human condition? Isn't that what you see when you turn on CNN, when you look at the cesspool cities? People walking around the feces and the needles, and they want to vote for more of it. All right? It is the human nature condition to um, basically get comfortable, even with abject tyranny and bondage, and say, I want to force it on my neighbors while I'm at it. What's the point? <laughs> well, I guess one of the points is the one that uh, Solomon made so eloquently in Ecclesiastes. There ain't nothing new under the sun. What has been is what has what has been is what shall be, and we're seeing that too. It is the essence of cycles. What has been is what shall be, and this cycle, just like the last one, like the one that's coming up. But when you add cycles upon cycles, wheels within wheels, now we have what are called grand cycles and super cycles and epic turning points in history and so forth. Again, I think all of these are playing out. We're seeing some of these build to that point. And remember, what, what makes it different? As we practice, as we look at the things we're supposed to see, as we start to recognize, hey, this is the reason why he, he says, do this remembering me. This is the reason why he says, do this every year at this time. Keep this uh, my feast, my moed, 
my, my, my appointed time because it's for your blessing. What does that look like? I think we're seeing parts of it. I mean, I will suggest aspects. There are others as well. So this is not intended to be a conclusive or inclusive, uh, ex, you know, complete list, exhaustive list. It just says you will learn things. There will be blessings associated with this. I will show you things. You will see the shadow pictures of, of things to come. You'll recognize the times and the seasons. So for all of these reasons, as we look at this story and say, what can I take from it? Answer. Walk in obedience. Know that there's a reason. He keeps saying, ki ani Yahuwah. There's a reason. He says, my hog, my feast, my moedim, keep them throughout your generations forever. Teach your children. Tell the story. Because we learn. Most of us know that if you uh, want to learn something, you teach it. You'll never learn any better than by, than by teaching it. And in this case, it is so vital, too, because we see that there are elements of what's coming that we recognize. And finally, there's this element of hope. And this is the way that I want to I want to close. Um, understand. Because what did Abraham have? Abraham had a promise. He had a promise that through your seed, these things are going to come. It was a strong enough understanding that he was willing to put Isaac on the, on the pyre. Because he knew Isaac wasn't going to die. No matter what he did, he trusted that Yah's promise was going to be fulfilled. I don't think he knew exactly how it was going to happen. But one thing he knew... Isaac isn't going to die, period. And we know that. And as a matter of fact, he bore that out. Other things that we saw, things that might even seem not as important to us, but there were promises made to Abraham, we see, and we're seeing it in this story as it plays out, right? They plundered Egypt. They took all of these articles of silver and gold and jewelry and clothing and, as it turns out, armament and other things. That was prophesied. He kept that promise, too. So over and over again, he keeps his promises. Well, what do we know today? We are in bondage. We have seen the cycles. We know that when they cried out, and we see it with the story of Moses in chapter 6, he was sent because the Creator had a plan. Well, what do we know here? That same Moses told us in Deuteronomy, other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, have all said it too, this other greater regathering, this greater exodus, is still to come. I believe that. I think that is an incredible promise. We don't, I don't believe at least. Uh, well, maybe we do. Okay, uh, what I started to say was we don't have quite as much detail about how it's going to play out. Ultimately, we do. We have detail that's given to us in places like Revelation. We have stories. I, I've heard it taught, and I believe that there's a lot of truth in this, that in the story, for example, of Joshua and the taking of the land, you'll see prophetic elements that fit with Revelation. We'll talk about that one of these days because it's important. Uh, We also see it with other things. We see it, of course, with Daniel. So we recognize that there are all these prophetic fulfillments yet to come. Maybe, folks, it's just simply that uh, when we look back at history and we see the pieces fit into place, we go, oh, yeah, I guess in hindsight that's kind of obvious. But when you're staring at the next crest and you can't see whatever cycle peaks are beyond that or how many there are or how big they are because this first one looks overwhelming just right now, well it does seem a little bit more difficult to discern, but what do we know? We know ki ani Yahuwah. We know, do this remembering me. We know that he kept his promises. If there's one thing we can literally bet our, uh, our immortal souls on, it's that he is who he says he is. He is who he says he will be. And he will do what he says he will do. His word does not return void. We can count on all of that. 
So um, I think that is a, a wonderful understanding, even if we are at a time when a lot of folks might say, hey, this is kind of scary. And by the way, let's go back a couple verses. What is it that he says that now hopefully resonates even more? Do not fear, O Yaakov, my servant, says Yahuwah, for I am with you, and I will make a complete end of all of the nations to which I have driven you. Oh, yeah. There's going to be some hassle. There's going to be a little bit of travail along the way because you deserve it. But understand, if I make a promise, you can count on it. I am with you. I will make a complete end of all the nations which I have driven you. Uh, What is the rest? What is it that the whole point of the Passover and of the understanding of the telling is? I will bring you out of bondage by a mighty hand. I will deliver you. What is it that the message of the, uh, the last of the cup says? There's a message of redemption. That is the cup that he will drink with us. And then, thankfully, the cup of praise. And we can look forward to all kinds of things. And yeah, uh, the fall feast, the story of the wedding, and the, the great harvest, all of those things yet to come. So truly, it is a wonderful thing to understand why it is he says, do these things remembering me. So with that, I'll pause and I'll ask um, any other comments or, um, or questions on anything. Here's a question that scrolled off. Okay, um, in Matthew 5, where Yeshua says, Our righteousness, our obedience to Torah, has got to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. What does that mean? Now, a lot of us read that and we say, Oh, scribes and Pharisees, these were righteous dudes. They knew the law. Thankfully, the law is done away with. We don't have to do a wrong eh, buzzer hook. Okay? Our righteousness has to surpass the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to contend that they were boog... <laughs> no, I can't say some of these bad words. Uh, Yeshua called them hypocrites. Hypocrites. You get one new disciple, you make him ever more disciple of Sheol, of hell, of the grave than you. You're rotted sepulchers, full of empty dead men's bones. Is it uh, any great deal to surpass their righteousness? Well, not if you follow the same path and believe that they were righteous. How about if you recognize why he called them hypocrites? Because what was the one thing that they should have known? We see example after example. Do not add to or subtract from. What is it they did? Added to, added to, added to. We got a hundred, you know, uh, the creator of the universe gave us maybe, uh, you can count them on, on two hands, the rules that have to do with the Sabbath, which can do and which can't do. There's some, uh, there's some maybe understanding in there, but what did they do? By the time of Yeshua, they had written at least 15 or 1600 additional commands. How far you can walk, how, how big of a rock you can pick up, and what you have to do if you take it too far, and how to do this and how to do that. Huh. None of that's in Scripture. They'll tell you it's oral Torah. Yeshua called it the traditions of the elder. And he said, by your traditions, you made the commandments of Yah of no effect. So to answer the question, I hope it's clear. What does our righteousness have to do to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees? Answer, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? If you love me, keep my commandments. And I usually say, well, which ones? Oh, you know, the ones I wrote down for you. In genuine print. The ones that I came as the Torah made flesh to teach you. The ones that you have written. By the way, the ones that you are without excuse for not understanding. What else are we told? Deuteronomy chapter 30. It ain't too hard. One of the other big lies you'll hear me rail against frequently. And maybe I'll do it for a second here now. It's too hard. You can't possibly keep the Torah, the law. No, only Jesus could keep the law. Bull. 
Moses said it's not too hard. Yeshua said it's not too hard. Paul, rewriting it and rephrasing it and making the point in his letter, says it's not too hard. Somebody tells you it's too hard, don't do it. They're a liar and the truth is not in them. So what does Yeshua say? Our our righteousness had better surpass the scribes and the Pharisees? You bet. All you got to do is just read his word, walk in obedience, do the best you can to do it. And you're there. So hopefully that answers the question. Um, so I, I see the follow-up here. Sometimes I feel like the Jews of today might be affecting believers today. They seem to add to the word. Uh, I don't like the word law, as you know, for that reason, because they don't tell you. By the way, neither does the whore church or the whore synagogue. Both of them fall into the same deliberate trap. They'll tell you, our word is law. What is the Pope, the vicar of Christ? He calls God up on the red phone and tells him what he got wrong today. All right, fish on Friday. Now we changed our mind. No fish on Friday. Isn't in the book to begin with. What's food? Pork, oh, it's okay, you can have a pork sandwich because Jesus died on the cross, so you can eat some shellfish for dessert, too. Wrong. They're adding to, they're subtracting from. And each of the two whoring houses kind of has their favorite thing. The Pharisees were really big on adding to, and the whore church seems to be really big on subtracting from. And they all like to, um, well, just make their own rules law and uh, ignore his. Again, what does he say? By your traditions, you've made the commandments of Yah of no effect. So, um, you betcha. Uh, and the question is, um, who are you going to believe, right? The creator of the universe, or what some lying guy tells you, uh, you got to believe today, because if you can't, uh, you can't read this book for yourself. You better have a priest here to interpret it properly for you. Remember that for about a thousand years, folks, uh, the Roman church made it a death penalty offense for a layperson to have a copy of scripture. And a fellow named Gutenberg pretty well put the uh, wooden stake in that one. Okay, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'll answer this, and we'll, we'll spend more time on it if we need to. There are, in fact, rabbinic Jews will say, if you are a Gentile, what's a Gentile? A pagan. Understand that in that context, they're saying, if you're a pagan, well, all you have to do is keep the, uh, the Noahide laws. Taurus for Jews. What's a Jew? Trouble is, they can't tell you most of the time. Well, a Jew is of the tribe of Judah, or maybe a Jew was those that lived in the, the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of, uh, uh, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to say Yeshua. Uh, how about uh, Judah, Benjamin, and some Levites? All right, what about the lost tribes? Are they Jews? Well, sometimes they'll say yes. By the way, I don't want to mean, I don't mean to, to paint everybody with the same broad brush, because you'll find that the more Torah literate people are, regardless of what ethnicity or what tribe they think they're from, the more Torah literate they are, the more they understand that um, all of these words, like Jew or Israel, are important in context. right? Israel at the time of David was not the same Israel of the time 200 years later, when the line of kings had fallen into apostasy. So it's, it's important that when we use these words, we understand, and that we, we get it right in context. But uh, I will contend, and I think uh, Paul is on the same page this time, and he should be if we rightly divide the word every time, because he, after all, was doing that. It's just the translators that have put words in his mouth that he didn't say. Still, if we understand that um, we are supposed to be grafted in, we're to, to hope to be grafted in. Some of us maybe are of the 12 tribes that were lost and scattered and we don't know it. But anybody that wants to can be grafted in. What's the key? Make teshuva, return to him. Do as I say. Seek, uh, ask, you shall find, and so forth. Understand how we are redeemed, by whom we are redeemed. And as he puts it, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
So I get I get impatient sometimes with all this you know works based salvation and people saying all kinds of things that are utterly in contradiction to Scripture, and uh, they 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 try to get all over themselves with Paul and oh I'm I'm saved by grace not by works. Well, what does Yeshua say? If you're saved, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not that if you keep my commandments, I'll have to love you, or if you keep my commandments, you'll be saved come hell or high water. No. If, in fact, you have been saved, show me your faith by your works. That was what uh, another one of those taught ones put it, and that's a good way to put it, too. Well, then, if you love me, keep my commandments. It really, they try to make it so hard because they're going to try to get you to believe other things that aren't true, like the law is done away with. It's not. It was never law to begin with. It was inclusive of law. In other words, all of the commandments are part of his instruction, but so are the parables. So are the lives. So are the precedents. So is all of his instruction. Remember, Yeshua taught a lot of it by parables. That's not law, but it sure as heck is instruction. So it's important we understand that. Okay. Um... And, uh, yeah, so I see the comment on the screen. Scripture actually says, if you read it in the original, Charlotte, you'll see it says, one Torah. There is a Nikad Torah for the, uh, the stranger that dwells among you and for the native born. It's one instruction for everybody. So it's not that law is always wrong. It's just that law is too small. It's like saying all animals are horses. Well, no, they're not. There's a lot of animals that aren't horses. But all horses are, in fact, animals. Okay. Um... And again, uh, comments like, uh, we'll be rewarded for how well we kept the law. No, it's about, it's about walking in his instruction. Okay. Um, okay, I don't see any other questions. Hopefully that, um, hopefully that helps to make some of that. That's part of the reason, folks. And I have been accused of being kind of picky. Uh, there's a word that I have sometimes used, uh, anal retentive even. Maybe not. I hope that that's not the case. But certainly when it comes to certain words, I find that we have to be very clear. And if a word is defined by context, like, for example, Israel or Jew, what does it mean? Well, what does it mean in the context of the way Scripture uses it at that time? Another one, and there's hundreds of these words. Ish is one, and Isha. Okay, what's, when, when Yeshua says a man, uh, you know, if he looks at an Isha, uh, and he he covets her, he lusts for her in his heart, he's guilty of adultery. Well, what do we know in context? He's talking about a married woman. That word Isha means wife. And it depends on context which way it's translated. Well, it turns out that if they translate it as woman, when in fact he's talking about a wife, somebody screwed up and it's not him. So again, it's important that we know the context with all of these things. Okay, um, I don't see any other, uh, don't see any other questions. Uh, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad, Abba, we thank you. We thank you that you have preserved your word for us. We, ha- we thank you that you have given us the instruction, in this case, the hook, that we are to remember, memorialize, do the best we can to walk out the things you have said are your moedim, your feasts, your uh, appointed times, because there's something for us there. There's a blessing there. There is a, uh, an understanding there. There are sometimes things we don't even know that you have for us, for those who walk in obedience and in, in, in that blessing. So we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Guide us as we walk that narrow path. Let your Torah, your instruction, be a lamp to our feet. And help us, Abba, as we enter this time and we look forward to this time of your, your spring feasts and of celebrating what you already have done, but also what you will do. 
that you will show us the, the hidden things, the things that have been hidden, that those things you've promised will be revealed. Show us the things in this season and as we go through the times ahead that we need to know, that we seek to find in your word and by walking in obedience to you. We pray your blessing on all of those who seek that they would find, for all of those who seek to make teshuva, to return to you, that they would do so, that you would guide them. We pray, Father, too, that we would be able to walk in strength, to fear not, to trust that you, uh, well, that you have our backs, that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that your word is true, that those things you've promised, that if we will do them, we can count on you. Help us to truly know that, to yada that in our heart, to have that written on our hearts to the point where we can do these things. Abba, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for who you are, for who you have been and who you will be and what you have shown us that you will do. And all of this we ask in your set-apart name. Help us to be good and faithful servants to you. Help us to be found doing your work when you return. Help us to be counted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. Deliver us, we pray, from bondage. Redeem us with an outstretched hand. Take us to be your people. And all of this we ask in your name, for you are Yahuwah Zedeknu, Yahuwah Vitsivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, our banner Yahuwah Nisi, our healer Yahuwah Rapha, our all-sufficient El Shaddai, our Savior, Yahushua, the salvation of Yah. And we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us then begin to wrap up the live portion anyway with the Aharonic blessing. Remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe saying, Speak and turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Ibarekaka Yahuwah varish mareka, Yair Yahuwah panavaleka vichoneka, Isa Penavalecha, Viasim lecha, ha ha, Shalom. May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. Thus he said, They shall put Shami, my name, on the Benai Israel, and I myself shall bless them. And uh, may it be so.